0: Hello, my name is Stephen Dunn, and you're listening to Hellenistic Christendom, philosophy for understanding theology. Hello, welcome to another episode of Hellenistic Christendom, where today I would actually like to do some philosophy for understanding theology. So today, specifically, we're going to address some heavy subjects in philosophy, but in doing so, it's going to help us further understand some big issues in our thinking about God, or at least if my teaching capabilities allow for this. Now, this subject uh, for this episode pertains to a certain conversation philosophers are having on the relationship, if there is one, between universals and particulars. And this conversation can otherwise be known as the problem of the one and the many. Now, to start our inquiry for today, let's look at some insights from the Greek philosopher Plato and see what he had to say on the nature of universals. Now, Plato had taught that for every class concept that is a universal, which would be like an idea such as the good or even the number one, there was some particular instance which corresponded to that class. So, for those of you that love your uh, uh, algebraic expressions, take the form of the statement S is P, where S represents any subject and P represents any property or predicate. Now, P can represent any qualified predicate that you like, such as tall, green, pointed, angular, or again, whatever you want. Hence, because these particular instances, that is, these properties, can be applied to a number of other general instances. Hence, as the argument goes, these are known as universal terms, or forms, as Plato called them, whereby particular instances of some form is just something participating in the being or reality of said form. Okay, so state it another way. Take the example Stephen is chivalrous. Now, the subject, of course, would be myself, and chivalry is the qualified predicate in this instance. However, since chivalry can be applied generally to other instances as well, such as in Henry or Stacy and so on, so then there must be a universal form, and let's call this form chivalry with a capital C, where all instances of Stevens, Henry's, and Stacy's and so forth can participate in the real being of the form chivalry. Okay, I'll stop there because there's much more to say, but I'd like to relate these sort of thoughts to theology now and take a look at some possible problems that that scheme of universals and particulars um, arises with with regard to God. Now, first is the issue of how universals, like justice, can be used as predicates for God. So, such as to say that God is just or God is justice. Now, second is the issue of whether or not these universals exist independently of or dependently on the mind. That is, are they material or corporeal or are they immaterial or incorporeal? And now, these two issues are actually somewhat related, although we can kind of conceptually distinguish between the two to kind of formulate separate discussions. Now, regarding the first issue of how universals can be predicated of God, let's take a look at a treatment from the philosopher and theologian Anselm of Canterbury, in whose book, The Monologion, we find a discussion of justice in chapter 16. Now, The Monologion is a Latin phrase that literally means I suppose roughly, I guess, a speech made to oneself. And he actually wrote a kind of sequel or a book after this one called The Proslogion, which means a speech made to another. So these books are kind of meant to be kind of read hand in hand. Now in chapter 16, he starts with a basic reasonable observation that the supreme nature is what it is, good, great, existing, precisely through itself and nothing else. So, now, in our usual declarations of things being just, or great even, we usually employ these terms to tell us of the kind of thing it is, referring to quality, and how great it is, which refers to quantity. Now, in other words, things in the world, that is, chairs, lamps, desks, beds, pillows, etc., they all exist in some qualified way, to tell us better of what kind of the thing is in question. And on the other hand, God exists in an unqualified way. And actually, Anselm goes on to argue in that book, Proslogion, that I mentioned earlier about this very point in some detail. Now, hence, Anselm is arguing that human beings can only possess the quality of justice, whereas God, it is more accurate to say that God is just or being justice. So Anselm writes, Quote, furthermore, it makes no difference whether it is said to be just or justice. This is because to say of the supreme essence, that's God, that it is just is the same to say that it is being justice. And it is being justice is the same as it is justice. And so when asked what the supreme nature is, just is as appropriate as an answer as justice. Now, the radical underlying principle of all this is that justice is one instance. The same applies to everything else that can be said in the same way of the supreme nature. These terms, then, indicate not a quality or quantity, but rather what the supreme nature or essence is in itself. And moving forward to kind of elaborate on this, let's look to the second problem, that of how universals relate to the human mind, especially the divine mind. Now, the philosophers and theologians known as the medieval scholastics, or schoolmen as they're called, occasionally fell somewhere on a spectrum which fell between two extremes. On the one hand, you had the hyper or extreme realism of that sort of platonic sort that I was talking about earlier, which denied the reality of the particulars altogether, or at least in some strands, almost to such a point that only form or universals dictated what was real or most real. And I have an example here that I'm, that's coming to mind. I'm thinking of of William of Champeau, who argued for a material essence sort of realism, which substituted or put priority over, for those of you that know your philosophy more, it put priority over Aristotle's 10 categories with instead now 10 essences that now corresponded to the categories. So the other side of the debate, apart from this sort of extreme realism, were those known as the nominalists, who denied that universals had any real existence outside of the mind. William of Ockham notably offered his arguments against the existence of mind-independent universals, as we find in his Summa Logicae, as well as his Ordinatio and other texts. He writes, just to flesh this idea out in some detail, that, quote, I maintain that a universal is not something real that exists in a subject, either inside or outside the mind. But that it has being only as a thought object in the mind. It is a kind of mental picture which as a thought object has a being similar to that which the thing outside the mind has in its real existence. Now with those two extremes kind of mentioned there then exists what we can call a kind of middle ground sort of view that's known as moderate realism who now, moving forward, I'm going to be looking at Boethius and Thomas Aquinas as my preferred uh, examples on this view. Now, starting with Boethius, for those that are more philosophically inclined, my reading of Boethius is that I understand his relevant commentaries, for example, on this subject to be a sort of synthesis of bringing together of the Neoplatonic belief regarding emanation and the Aristotelian sort of preoccupation with individuals or particulars. Now, for those of you that are not so philosophically inclined, and if I haven't lost you already, God bless you, but moving forward, let's start from the beginning. In Boethius' book entitled Second Commentary on Peripheries Isagog, he offers a kind of moderate realism where the status of universals can actually be abstracted or kind of be conceptualized from experience as a means of providing an experience with what he called intelligible form. Now, of course, that comes more from Aristotle, but Moving forward. So, in other words, we see a sort of balancing act with Boethius. On the one hand, we see his use of the realist conception of universals, which are prior to things, particulars, which is in reference to Plato and he also balances on the other hand the conceptualist view of them as being dependent on things when referring to Aristotle. So again, we have this kind of congruence or synthesis of Plato and Aristotle kind of taking place in Boethius. Now, in his own words, he says, quote, so that these two or so excuse me, so that these have two conditions. One as to things prior to them according to which they are said to be their species. And so he's speaking here of universals. And the other to things After them, according to which they are said to be their genera. Now, Thomas Aquinas, in his commentary on the posterior analytics, um, so Aristotle wrote a book called The Posterior Analytics. Thomas Aquinas wrote a commentary on it, and he offers a somewhat agreeable view with Boethius by saying that our cognitive abilities, our mental capacities, are such that we can cognize or sort of think about the nature or quiddity of things which just is a funny, old, forgotten Latin phrase which refers to the essence of things. That is, the human mind can reflect on universals, which are the constituents, the sort of comprising material of categorical propositions, which are statements of the form, this is that, or S is P. Those are categorical propositions, as I mentioned at the start of this podcast. Now, Aristotle makes a similar observation in his posterior analytics, particularly Book 2, Chapter 5, when he said that there was a relationship between our ability to define something by way of a sort of syllogism, a demonstration, or argument, and knowing the essence of that thing. And the brand of Aristotelianism that resulted in the later medieval or scholastic conversation merely saw man as a unified material corporeal substance whose natural form of access to the world was through the bodily senses. Now, Aquinas offers a view between this kind of Aristotelianism and Platonism by introducing what we can call intellective abstraction, now, it is clear, he says, strictly speaking, and per se, one senses a particular. Nevertheless, in a certain respect, sense perception is of the universal itself. For it cognizes, to use an example, Socrates, not only insofar as he is Socrates, but also insofar as he is this particular human being. Thus, it is, by, thus it is that by virtue of this sort of antecedent, sensory uh, reception, the intellective soul can consider human being in both. Now, therefore, because we have cognition of universals from particulars, Aristotle concludes that it is clear that one cognizes first universal principles by by means of induction. For in this way, namely by a process of induction, sense perception introduces the universal in the soul. Insofar as all the particulars are considered. Now the kinds of universal principles that errors or excuse me that Aquinas has in mind are not of demonstration, but are universal uh, principles of propositions. Not propositions themselves, but to the universal natures to which propositions refer. And second, Aquinas uses induction only to refer to the activity of examining through particular instances, not, for example, of our epistemic justification of them. Now, I'll go ahead and stop there because uh, in another episode, I'll treat the issue of simplicity and participating in God's being and look a little bit more look in a little bit more detail um, as to the philosophy and theology of Boethius and Thomas Aquinas. But as I said, I know that was probably a lot of heady philosophy and theology, but I'm trying to keep this content available on the podcast so I can kind of have it available for those interested in subjects like universals, divine simplicity, being, and so forth, which might be more for the philosophically or academically inclined. Though, of course, I want the general audience to be interested and swayed by these sort of conversations so that they, that they can dive deeper in the conversation surrounding God's existence. Um, that's happening in a more sophisticated uh, way. So, yeah thank you so much. (laughs) God bless you. As I always say these at the end of these videos, thank you so much for retaining the time and the attention to make it to the end uh, of what I have to say on some subject. God bless you. May God keep you and please have a wonderful day.